You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Michael Pallara, who is a trial lawyer by training, and he's pursued the case of slain CIA officer Freddie Woodruff for more than 10 years. His new book, The Spy Who Was Left Behind, Russia, the United States, and the True Story of the Betrayal and Assassination of a CIA Agent details this quest, and it is out now. And I know out there in SpyCast listener world, you, you hear me talk about books all the time. I get dozens and dozens and dozens of books every year. Uh, I can honestly say that this is one of the top books I've read this year. It's an extraordinary account of a story that will blow your mind. If you don't know the back, even if you even if you're ex-agents, your current agency, and you know the story of Freddie Woodruff, the explanation of this case is mind-blowing. So, Michael, I, welcome to SpyCast. Thank you so much for talking to us. Just, I'm really excited about that. I mean, I'm usually not this gushing, but this book really was one that I think everyone needs to read. Uh, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> so I, if you can, set up the who of Freddie Woodruff uh, and kind of how he found himself uh, in the country of Georgia um, in, in a place where he was getting himself killed. Freddie Woodruff was a CIA branch chief, an acting station chief, the branch being Transcaucasia, the station being Tbilisi. As branch chief for Transcaucasia, he had administrative authority over Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, uh, a powder keg of the world, if you will. He had been brought into that position from the Soviet East Asian Bureau after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the proliferation of stations inside the former Soviet Republic. He was dispatched to Tbilisi with the primary obligation of training the uh, personal protection force for Edward Shevardnadze, the former Soviet foreign minister who had become the junior member of the governing council in Georgia. When uh, Mr. Shevardnadze was offered the position of chairman of that governing council, his first call was to Jim Baker to ask whether or not his old adversary, the United States, would provide his personal protection. And the president, President Clinton, agreed to that. And this was the first such effort inside the territory of the former Soviet Union. We may not often think about Georgia as a country, except for in the last couple of years, there have been certainly news stories about the war with Russia and some of the um, the, the political shenanigans that have gone on there. But this is a time in which Georgia and all the other republics, certainly of the Caucasus region, it was a wild west. This was a time when there wasn't necessarily a well-established government like we may see today. Absolutely correct. Georgia was actually the first of the Soviet republics to withdraw from the Union. And they did so uh, under the leadership of an academic, Zvad Gamsakurdia. But when Gamsakurdia took the helm of the country, he demonstrated a, a remarkable lack of liberal democracy. 
And so none of the Western countries would recognize him. This invited uh, a coup, and his minister of defense and a mafia chief together overthrew his government. They could not obtain legitimacy in the eyes of the West until they found an interlocutor that the West was willing to talk to, and that person was Edward Chevrednante. So you don't just have an academic relationship to this case. You actually have a personal relationship to the Woodruff family. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I grew up in Searcy, Arkansas. And one of my teachers, both at college and in in Bible school when I was in high school and junior high, was Freddie's father, George Woodruff. Freddie had three younger sisters, and all three of them were in school with me. And I didn't actually know Freddie personally, although I had seen him play football at Harding College. And when I read about the death of a CIA officer in Georgia, I was startled to see that it was the Freddie Woodruff that I knew. And so I undertook to do a little bit of investigation with an eye toward giving the family the comfort of information so that their grief could be completed as quickly and easily as possible. Unfortunately, what I discovered was that the FBI in its FOIA documents had provided me enough information that I concluded the young man convicted of Freddie's murder simply could not have committed the crime for which he was accused. I made a trip to Georgia to look into that. I came back more convinced than ever that he was innocent, but basically I was helpless to do anything about it because I had no standing. I took the information to the family and they startled me with their humanity by demanding that, that we do something to right this wrong and set this innocent young man free. One thing I, oh, sorry, go, sorry, go ahead, please. Oh, the, they engaged me. I became licensed to practice law in Georgia and set about to try and free the young man who had been wrongfully convicted of Freddie's murder and in the process was basically required to prove who committed the murder in order to get him out of prison. Well, I, I was also thinking about a, another familiar relationship you have with this, at least with the concept of righting a wrong or the concept of getting to the bottom of truth when it comes to your family. And I'm referring to your father and the, the story about his death in Vietnam, finding out later that it was completely made up and covered up. Correct. Um, my father died in 1967 when I was 10, and the the Air Force had told us that he died in a quaint little village in Vietnam while attempting to rescue someone. But as I became an adult, as I gained the skills of being a lawyer, I turned to investigate that and discovered that it was, in fact, all a fantasy, that my father had died in Laos over the Ho Chi Minh Trail trying to rescue an F-100 pilot who'd been shot down while bombing a country with which we were not at war. And it made me believe two things. One was that I shouldn't believe everything my government tells me. And number two was that sometimes it is important to lie. And I accepted the fact that my government felt the need to lie to me but I felt uncomfortable with the fact that they never came forward to tell the truth. And so I feel like it is important, even if there are national security reasons to protect a fact at an early date, at a later date, it makes sense to tell the truth. Well, let's talk a little bit about the cover-up of the crime of Woodruff in the very beginning, Um, because this was something where you have a U.S. acting station chief who's undercover as a high-level State Department official, getting shot, and magically nine days after the murder, they've solved the crime. And I'm I'm putting air quotes around solved because the inconsistencies that you lay out in the book were were stunning. I I mean, I I was laughing sardonically the whole time, like, I can't believe how ridiculous this is. Well, when you're in 
an environment in which there is no free press, in which there is no publication of the things that the government is doing. They, they're not required to be very creative or very consistent when they frame a man for a murder. And so coming in after the fact, I had the benefit of their lack of preparation and very poor execution. <laughs> when, on the evening that Freddie was murdered, he was riding in the backseat of a car driven by the chief uh, personal protection officer for Mr. Shevardnadze, a man named Eldar Gogoladze. And Freddie, Eldar, and two women had gone for a day up to the Russian border. They were driving back along a two-lane highway late at night, and just before they reached the turnoff to Tbilisi, allegedly the young man who was convicted of the crime standing on the side of the road took a pot shot at their car as they whizzed by and hit Freddie in the head. The car that he was riding in was a Neva, a kind of Russian SUV that uh, has a hatchback, fixed windows in the back seat so they don't roll down, and two crank windows in the two front bucket seats. The window on the passenger side was down about six inches, maybe four, right in that range. The window on the driver's side was rolled up and was broken. It couldn't roll down. The crank was broken. Freddie was allegedly shot above the right eye with a large evacuation wound in the upper right quadrant of the back of his head. The young man who was arrested was arrested a couple of hours after the murder by Eldar Gogoladze. He had dumped off the body, turned around and gone back to the location where the shooting allegedly occurred, didn't find anything, drove to a nearby police substation, walked into the substation, saw three young men arguing with the police there, and shouted, arrest them, they killed the American. That was the official version of the events. The body of Freddie was then transported to a hospital and autopsied. When it was autopsied, the federal authorities in the United States had instructed that the brain and head not be touched. What the garbled instruction to the Georgians was, what came out as the only thing you can touch is the head. They took his brain, it was never recovered, and they never recovered the bullet that allegedly killed him. Those two missing pieces of key evidence allowed them to create any story that they wanted for the murder of Freddie Woodruff. In addition, the United States had dispatched a legat from Bonn to Tbilisi immediately upon notification of the murder. He arrived and was working less than 18 hours after the murder occurred. In his initial report, he said that his inspection of the car in which Freddie was riding discovered no bullet holes in either the metal skin or the glass of the car. And for me, this created a real dilemma. How do you get a bullet from outside of the car into the car to kill Freddie without leaving a bullet hole? When I had gone to Georgia and begun the process of my interviews before I visited with the Woodruff family directly, I had discovered that the FBI agent was not alone in claiming that there was no bullet hole. Eldar Gogoladze had inspected the car and claimed there was no bullet hole. The chief of security for Georgia had inspected the car and seen there was no bullet hole. Multiple people, including American representatives of the embassy, the diplomatic security, had inspected the car and seen there was no bullet hole. Remarkably, a week later, <laughs> a junior inspector found a bullet hole it's magic. and it matched the caliber of weapon seized from the young men arrested by Eldar Gogoladze. Magic, how that happens. Yep. And then shell casings, too, magically appearing shell casings at the exact spot that the FBI was looking. Correct. 
the FBI had uh, was treated to a reenactment of the crime when the shooting team was brought in to uh, to do a very cursory investigation of this event, and the young man who was ultimately convicted, whose name was Anzor Sharmaidza, was brought out and told, where were you standing? And he stood in a place and they said, what did you shoot? I shot. Did the shell casing come out? Yes, it went that way. Let's go look in the woods and see, or in the grass and see if we can find it. And they came away with a shell casing that matched his, the, his gun. It was ultimately uh, demonstrated by the tool marks to be from his gun. But it had lain there for nine or ten days without being disturbed, without being affected by rain or sun or anything. And the response of the FBI was, do they think we're idiots? <laughs> well, and then magically, when they, uh, when, they, when they inventoried the rounds in the magazine for the weapon, there were a couple more than when they finally gave it to the FBI. The yes, FBI, there, yeah. So <laughs> there, there were two, two rounds had been removed in one way or another from the magazine, which had originally been collected from Sharmaidza and inventoried by, by the, both Georgians and the FBI. And then when the weapon was brought in later and delivered to the FBI for tra transit to Washington, D.C. in the lab, it had two fewer bullets in it. And that's the number of bullets that would be necessary if you were going to fire one round at the site of the alleged murder and a second round into the back of the Neva. Well, I want to get a little bit into the actual the court case, uh, the original court case of the, the man who was um, prosecuted. But I want to talk a little bit about how you were able to get some of this information because as an intelligence historian, we face problems of finding actual documents and understanding how we can use things like FOIA to provide us information to allow us to, to do our jobs. And you FOIA'd a ton of stuff from the FBI. And I think it's a combination of your legal training where you talk about a talent for documents and a tenacious attention to detail. You were able to pull a lot from incredibly heavily redacted documents. And that was fascinating. And again, this is why a lot of, one of the reasons I'm recommending this book to people out there is because the conclusions you draw from heavily redacted documents are really, really interesting. Talk a little bit about how you were able to work your way through some of these documents that really had nothing that you would look at on face value and say, there's stuff in here, but you're able to pull stuff out of it. My area of expertise as a lawyer is, is what's called complex commercial litigation. And it is a document-intensive form of trial work in which you learn to look at documents not simply for what they say, but for when they are created and how they come to exist. You look at uh, the nature of the privileges that are asserted regarding a document to try and understand what it is. Uh, if, it, if someone is seeking legal advice and the claim is made that the document is attorney-client privilege, then you begin to say, why were they talking to a lawyer at that moment? This would be an example. With respect to the FOIA documents, you have a similar set of privileges and exemptions that the government is asking for. Some of them relate to personal identifying information, and therefore you're not going to get someone's name. Others relate to national security. So that the purpose of the redactions themselves become informative. The foundation of my work was a timeline. I put everything in order and then tried to understand the rhythm of what was happening behind those documents. And as I would investigate and discover that one or two people had talked to the FBI, I would try to find them in my timeline and then use the interviews that I had with them to supplement the information that had been pulled out. If a document said, for example, that the FBI needed country clearance to go to Azerbaijan and that they needed country clearance for two agents and a polygrapher. It told me that there was a witness in Azerbaijan that they felt they could talk to who was sufficiently cooperative enough to give a, a statement while on a polygraph machine. But 
also somebody that they wanted to test the reliability of and therefore not someone that they trusted from the beginning. You also had examples of, of documents in which the, the FBI would deliver a document to me and it would have been redacted in a specific way, but then they would turn around and re- deliver the document to a journalist, perhaps in Georgia, this happened on two occasions, in which they redacted it differently. And I was able to compare the two sets of documents and see how they were changing what was important to them over time. I also laid the timeline on top of what was publicly available from FBI activities. The, the, the Woodruff investigation involved two separate FBI investigations. The first was the shooting team, and that investigation terminated with the conviction of Anzor Sharmaidza. Eight days later, they reopened the investigation because they had arrested Aldrich Ames, and Ames had been in Georgia two weeks before Woodruff was murdered. And in their attempt to investigate Ames, they were going backwards in looking at whether he may have been responsible in any way for the death of this CIA's uh, branch chief. Adding that complexity to it and that that layer of, of information allowed me to understand a great deal about the individual documents that followed and this flurry of activity that occurred as I am led forward. Then when you get to narrative documents, such as the letterhead memorandum, which was incredibly redacted, they would leave just enough teasing information that allowed me to understand the context of their thoughts. For example, an entirely redacted section of the of the letterhead memorandum was under a single three-word title, Spetsnaz Group Alpha. And I was able, by finding Spetsnaz Group Alpha operators inside of Georgia, to divine what had been taken out of the letterhead memorandum by because I was able to interview the people about whom the FBI was talking. Right. That's the sort of thing that I did. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Yeah, I mean, I, that some of the things it, this book twisted so wonderfully. I mean, I'm, I'm reading it and I'm loving it because it's basically Law and Order Langley or CSI CIA. I mean, that kind of going through this kind of heavily evidence-based conversation, especially when you're talking about the court case. And then all of a sudden, Aldrich Ames pops up. And all of a sudden, GRU pops up. And you're like, oh, wait, this has taken a turn in an interesting direction. Uh, we'll get to that in one second. Let me ask you about the court case against the poor bastard who was framed for this. I This is where I really was laughing out loud about how ridiculous this was and a total farce. And it was preordained. Like, there, this wasn't a real trial. Well, the, the lawyer representing Anzor Sharmaidza was a court-appointed lawyer, someone for whom I have enormous respect. He understood when he reviewed the file that the evidence against his client had been cooked, that it wasn't, that there was no basis, in fact, to conclude that he was guilty. And was afraid that he was being involved in 
the execution of an innocent man. He confronted the judge privately about this, and the judge told him that, in fact, it had already been decided that his client was guilty, and it had already been decided that his client would get 15 years of hard labor. And so, based on that representation, Thomas Enashvili, the lawyer, was willing to go forward in his representation because he felt that he was now in a position to save his client's life. But none of the people involved, including the defendant, had any illusions about the fact that this was a complete fraud. It was done largely for Western consumption. It was done in order to provide the United States a fig leaf regarding the prosecution of the guilty in the death of Freddie Woodruff. But it wasn't even done well. I mean, you talk in the book about the fact that there's clear evidence of torture, where there was a, a, a gun butt-shaped bruise on the side of his face. Uh, there was the time when one of his cohort, the three people arrested together, actually straight up said, I am saying this because I was told to by the prosecutors. I mean, that, that to me, and then of course, that was laughable, but then the response to that was even more ridiculous. Well, the judge immediately ruled him out of order because he had suggested that the evidence was, had been manufactured by the prosecution, and since that was impossible, then the testimony had to be stricken. <laughs> yeah, I'm still laughing at it. I mean, it's one of the most ridiculous, farcical things. Um, I, I, but it seemed like the Americans were okay with this, at least, at least most of us. The, the most most of America had had moved on to tell the truth, but when Freddie's body was delivered to the Americans by the Georgians, Edward Shevardnadze and his head of uh, intelligence, a man named Arakli Batiashvili, went to the airport to deliver the body to DCI Woolsey, and. They spoke on the international side of passport control for almost an hour. Irakli Batiashvili and Edward Shevardnadze both told me that as they were driving back to the city, one of the things that Shevardnadze simply could not comprehend was the fact that Director Woolsey never mentioned the murder. And according to Irakli Batiashvili, this was a message to Edward Shevardnadze, which he understood to be, make this murder go away as quickly and quietly as you can. And just, just to reiterate what you said in the beginning, this wasn't just a nice trip by Jim Woolsey to Georgia. He's literally going over to pick up the body. He was, he was in Moscow at the time, interfacing with his opposite number in Russia when the murder occurred, and he diverted and went directly to Tbilisi for the purpose of picking up the body. How hard was this? I, I, you've talked about this, about the, the second FBI investigation, the one that's a little bit more rigorous. And then I want to ask you about your investigation, because you mentioned the fact that it's hard to tell the good guys from the bad guys in Georgia. Extremely. The, one of the fundamental difficulties that I faced, besides the, the cultural distance, was the fact that I needed to be able to deal with and trust people that I knew were lying to me. And I needed to come up with a paradigm that would allow me to trust them, even though their words might in fact be deceitful. And this was something that I struggled with over a period of years and finally came to the realization that I could trust them if I could divine the thing that was most important to them. Because if I could understand what was most important to them, then I could trust that they would always and invariably pursue that thing. And so when I was dealing with uh, a general officer from Group Alpha. He was, in every sense, a superb military professional. And what he valued above all things was professional honor. 
And I was able to trust what he would tell me to the extent it would relate to professional honor. And he, at one point, uh, angrily pointed out that someone had stolen from him and that that had rendered this man not worthy of the name professional. This became a key clue in my understanding what had happened to Freddie and what had happened to the man who shot him. I'm wondering, I'm reading this, and you've mentioned it a couple times also, but it was pretty clear to me without you even having to bring it up was that this was potentially hazardous to your health, tracking down the the real killer and the real story behind this because, I mean, just reading about how they framed this poor soldier, they, they obviously, there's if you could have just disappeared if you'd gone over there and pissed off the wrong people. Uh, in retrospect, <laughs> it's a lot easier to talk about than it was at the time. But the truth is that it, it was a dangerous activity. Um, the United States very quickly disavowed me and disavowed any connection or ambiguity that might exist between me and them. Because the Georgians were quick to ask, is this man from one of your intelligence agencies? And unlike the norm, the Americans absolutely rejected the possibility and disavowed me, leaving me naked. They also manifested their opposition to what I was doing and encouraged the Georgians not to cooperate with me and to not release the innocent young man. And so this made my my situation more dire. There were several people who I was actively afraid of. One of them uh, threatened to kill me, and the FBI contacted me and hustled me out of the country. Uh, I was at one point triangulated by the president's bodyguards with their guns because I had the temerity to ask him a question in public. And there it was dangerous. But I had established a few rules for myself, and and Bob Baer, author and retired CIA operations officer, told me that those rules were the reason that I had survived. And chief among them was, I didn't keep any secrets. If someone asked me what I was doing or what I wanted or what my goal was or what a witness had told me, I told them everything I knew because I never knew who I was talking to. I never knew what their affiliation was or who they were reporting to. And I wanted everyone to know exactly what I was doing and the limits of what I was trying to accomplish. Well, it seems like, yeah, you talked about a list of people that you were afraid of. There's also a list in this book of people that there's no way you could have pulled this off without their help. Everyone from translators to former case officers. You want to talk a little bit about some of those, especially your, your helper, your translator slash, you know, matchmaker who led you all the way to Shevardnadze and everyone else. Absolutely. Lali Kedasalidze, an extraordinary woman with remarkable talents and absolutely amazing access. When I arrived in Georgia for the first time, I reached out to the American Bar Association office there, which was operating under SEALI, the Central European Law Initiative. And they put me in touch with a translator, Lali Kedasalidze, who had formerly been the translator for Edward Shevardnadze. When I arrived in Georgia, it was right after the Rose Revolution, and Misha Shakashvili was president. Edward Shevardnadze had retired to self-imposed exile in Tbilisi, but never came out in public. Lali had access to everyone. Uh, On my first visit, she made a call, and in a few hours I was sitting in the office of Eldar Gogoladze, at the offices of Kartu Bank. Gogoladze, who had been chief of protection for Shevardnadze, then in prison for complicity in an attempt to murder Shevardnadze, and immediately out of prison to the chief executive's office at Kartu Bank. He sat and talked to me for an hour because Lali Kedisalidze had opened the door. 
she was able to call Edward Shevardnadze and pass me through to his parlor for two hours of conversation. She was, it, it was truly remarkable. And her courage and dedication in doing it was something that truly I, I didn't expect and had no reason to believe any human being would do it. And she did it. I think it was much, much more than just the fact that I was a paying client. I believe that in the Georgian heart, there is a deep yearning for justice. And Lolly was expressing that in the most real terms possible. I, I, I wonder why all these people talked to you. You didn't have subpoenas. You didn't have any power. We, everyone decided they would talk to you. I mean, from the, the criminal masterminds to the people who were likely behind the shooting to the former essentially the former president or, or you know, equivalent to of Georgia. Why did they give you the time, do you think? Very good question. <laughs> well, I just I'm reading this, and I have on my notes, you know, when I'm when I'm reading through the book, and I talked about Lolly, and I'm like, I have everyone underlined twice. I mean, everyone who was involved in this decided to have conversations with you. I, I, it's so foreign to me that I don't know if it was machismo or if it was some sense that you looked innocent and you weren't necessarily a threat. So you do mention that about a couple of them who took one look at you and said. This is not somebody I'm worried about to their detriment. Uh, what, what do you think was the, the reason why they, they were willing to talk to you so much? I think one has to divide them into, into at least two class categories. There are the, the Georgians, and I, I would put the Georgians on one side, and on the other side I would put the American and Russian intelligence professionals. With respect to the Georgians, I think that I was initially a novelty. Right. And as a novelty, it, it might entertain for a few minutes. It's a good story to tell it over coffee. But also, I'm an, I'm an unknown, an uncertainty. I might be from the government. I never claimed to be. I denied it whenever I was accused of it. But it didn't seem to have much effect. The more I would deny it, the more they would believe that it was true. After a certain period of time, people would talk to me because others had talked to me and because I was in motion and they would want to direct me one way or another to deflect attention from them or to another person. With respect to the intelligence professionals, I believe that, frankly, it all traces back to Bob Baer. Because Bob Baer talked to me, the FBI special agent in charge of the Ames investigation as it relates to Freddie Woodruff was willing to talk to me. And because that agent was willing to talk to me, others were willing to talk to me. And this moved me forward through a very closed fraternity of professionals. On the Russian side, because I was in motion talking to former heads of state in Georgia or former KGB and GRU officers in Georgia, I became a potential asset, a potential resource to them if they could deflect or guide me to their ultimate purposes. I did not have enough arrogance in me to think that I could impact them, but I did believe that they would want to impact me. And so I go to Moscow and I sit down to meet with Viktor Cherkashin because Cherkashin is curious to know how can he use me. And he sets about to use me by facilitating a trip from Moscow to the Black Sea to meet someone on Interpol's most wanted list because it might potentially embarrass the American government or the Georgian government when my conclusions become known. Let me, I don't want to give away the ending of the book. I don't want to give away your conclusions, but um, I want to ask about Ames because 
he is well known, obviously. He's someone that everyone looks at, uh, rightfully so, as the reason that at least 10 of our assets inside the Soviet Union and Russia were executed, um, or many more imprisoned. Um, I had never put him as also the reason why an American CIA officer had been killed. You clearly lean in that direction. I do. And a part of that is I think that that we were intended to never connect those dots. When Mr. Ames was arrested, he he was at risk for the death penalty because of his his treachery. And the government had an interest in avoiding the death penalty because there is a deep desire to be able to debrief the accused, to have him as a resource on a going forward basis. And thus, it was very important to the prosecution that Ames not be accused of a crime for which the death penalty would not be taken off the table. And if he was responsible for the death of an American colleague, responsible for killing a CIA branch chief in order to protect himself, then it would be awfully hard for them to justify not seeking the maximum sanction. And we in in the States very quickly transitioned to Plato Kacharis is on the scene. Plato Kacharis will negotiate an agreement. Ames will tell us everything. Rosario will be in prison for a few few years and then leave to go back to Colombia. And Ames will be in prison for the rest of his life, available if and when we want to talk to him. And that was the ending that the government was seeking from the beginning. The uh, One of the things that I did in the process of, of this work was to reach out to Olga Chains and to correspond with him over a period of time. One of the things that I learned in that process was that the CIA was actively opposed to what I was doing. I wanted to be able to meet with Ames. He approved that, but the agency refused to allow me permission to meet him and actively interfered in our correspondence. How's that? All of his incoming and outgoing letters are are read and censored to the extent they should be. And several of the letters that I wrote him were never delivered. Hmm. They were intercepted and never delivered. One of the letters that he wrote me was intercepted, and only after I objected did I receive it. Let me ask you, begin as I don't want to – I want people to actually – kind of get surprised like I did because it was just really kind of delicious. So I want to move away from that a little bit. And I want to ask you a question about the family, the Woodruff family. How much did this provide them closure? Were they satisfied with all you found or are they just more pissed off now than they might have been before because they found out how little their family member's death was taken seriously? It's a complicated question. Because I represented one of Freddie's sisters, a woman serendipitously named Georgia, who was acting against the wishes of Freddie's widow. Freddie's widow preferred that the case not be investigated, preferred that I not take any of the steps that I took. I can you say? Have, can you can you let the listeners know? Uh, who Freddie's widow worked for? Uh, Freddie's Freddie's widow was at the time of her retirement the highest ranking woman in CIA, and she, uh, perhaps rightly, I, I cannot gainsay, but she was apprehensive that I would do more harm than good, right? And therefore, did not want me to do the things I was doing. Um, I'm very respectful of that, very respectful of her. I, I, I can only say that I did the best I could not to cause harm as I was going forward. 
and I can say affirmatively that there were lots of opportunities to screw up. Having said that, Georgia Woodruff Alexander and uh, Freddie's youngest sister, Jill Woodruff Pulley, were both very satisfied with the outcome. Their goal was not um, just information, just knowledge. The information, the solving of the crime, was kind of an unexpected thing when we started this project. I had reasoned that if I were to insist on solving the, the crime, I would be threatening the people who had actually done the crime. Right. <laughs> and, and I would be threatening the people who had covered up the crime. And this would raise the danger level exponentially. But I was forced to solve the crime because the government was unwilling to release the young man just because he was innocent. Well, not only that, so, they... they... After he did his 15 years, they arrested him like three days later and threw him back in for more. I mean, they weren't going to let him out ever. That's correct. And so it it is – it's very it, – it was very difficult to come to a place where I needed to actually solve the crime. But that's where we – I was ultimately pushed to. And – in doing that, I was able to give the Woodruff family not simply information, but the realization that Freddie was a hero. He, he died not simply as the result of a drunken pot shot, but he died in service to the country fighting an implacable enemy. And I think that that is something of which they can rightly be proud. Right. I mean, that's the shame of this is that this this story should be embraced by not only the CIA, but overall the United States because of exactly what you just said, because this was a guy who was doing everything right, who was doing exactly what he was trained to do and doing it selflessly in service for his country, and then his murders covered up. I think that's true, and I think that there are elements within the intelligence community that embrace the story. Uh, I got an unbelievable amount of assistance, expert assistance, from people in the community who were very, very committed to righting this wrong, both the wrong done to Anzor and the wrong done to Freddie. And I believe that perhaps enough time has passed that those others in the community are able to take a fresh look at this and revisit it. One of the interesting uh, and unexpected parts of this, G.L. Lamborn uh, was uh, acting station chief and branch chief for Transcaucasia, not immediately after Freddie, but in the period, I would say, uh, about 10 months later, starting 10 months later. And as the responsible officer over the station in Baku, he was supervising Gina Haspel. And so Gina Haspel was in theater at the time that the FBI was doing the second investigation of this murder and would therefore have at least tangential knowledge of it from the time in question. Right. I, 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 are you hopeful that this book coming out and this story becoming now widely known is going to change the attitude of, of officialdom? I mean, you talked about the fact that there were a lot of people who were willing to help you. Do you think that this might change the perception, like you talk about Haspel or others, of the, the organizations themselves to try to embrace Freddie Woodruff for the hero that he was? I, I think you'll have... Two very certain effects. I think that it will raise Freddie's historical profile substantially. I believe that he's he is deserving of that, and I think it will do so. Uh, I am I am not an intelligence professional. I did not have any real experience with intelligence professionals before I started this work. I am singularly impressed 
by both the quality and dedication of those people. And one of the things that was shocking to me was the extent to which they accept the fact that the sacrifices they make can go beyond the grave, that they can lose their honor historically if it is necessary to protect the national security of the United States, and that they willingly go into harm's way knowing that that may be the outcome. I think that this gives hope to those people that someday some busybody may come along and resurrect their their reputation. Second thing that I think will occur in the intelligence complex is that they will begin to plan for people like me. I, I'm I think that I'm kind of an unusual event in the intelligence environment. A single individual focused, funded and motivated who can step onto the world stage as an independent actor. I believe that technology has shrunk the world and made information available in ways that previously empires couldn't dream of. As a result, we started with what we now refer to as NGOs, non-governmental organizations, that have the status and stature of states. But now individuals can become their own autonomous NGO focused on single activities. I tried to talk to uh, the CIA general counsel about this once at a seminar in D.C., and she very quickly ran from me. I think mostly out of good sense and the fact that there's nothing she could say that would be, uh, be repeatable. And so... She didn't embrace the issue, but I think that my success, my story, will cause that to be something of a concern, and they're going to figure out how to either use me or marginalize me. The book is The Spy Who Was Left Behind, Russia, the United States, and the True Story of the Betrayal and Assassination of a CIA Agent. The author is Michael Pallara. Michael, thank you so much for talking to us here on SpyCast. This book... uh, is one of my favorite of the year. If you're thinking about uh, a one or two spy books to get for Christmas for somebody or just want to buy one for yourself, certainly check this one out. It is so different than everything else that's been coming out recently. I, I truly recommend it. So, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.